welcome to episode 315 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. In our epic, long, theological, systematized conversation, we're getting into what I like to call a little L and a little G. <laughs> but we're starting, well, maybe it's like capital L. Maybe that's what we should start that's with. That's true. And also capital G. But we're talking about the law on this episode. And it's kind of a, is it law prolegomena? I mean, it is a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like introduction to the law. It's And maybe not in the way that people might think, or you might think it's just a, we were going to have a passing conversation about the law, but we're going to actually talk about the three uses of the law, which I would say is, is somewhat distinct in flavor to Reformed theology, yes. yeah. not of course to understanding the law, but this is what's going to make this conversation so great is talking about these three uses. And if you're thinking, what, is there three uses of the law? Yes. Yes, loved one, there are. And we're going to get to that. But of course, before we do, let's affirm Let's deny. Let's have a good time. Uh, dealer's choice. You want to start with the negative and end positive, or would you like to pull us down so that we go into the law in the proper way? Let's go with that one. Let's start with <laughs> let's start with our affirmations today. Okay, go ahead. What are you affirming with? So um, I've been on, as I've said a couple times in the last like fifteen episodes, I've been on this productivity kick, and so I've been reading a book. And this book probably will not be new to most people. I'm actually a little bit surprised that it took me this long to come across it and read it. I'm reading a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And uh, it's pretty much what you would expect. It's a book about habit formation and strategies for how uh, how to structure your uh, your habits to orient you towards success. And the reason it's called atomic habits versus some other kind of habit is because his kind of habit methodology, if you want to call it that, it it it's based on building small manageable habits and then sort of like combining them together to to make sort of widespread larger change habit formation. So for example, he would even include things like getting out of bed as part of your habit formation. And the reason he would do that is because then you would attach one of the things called habit stacking um, or habit coupling. You would attach another desirable habit to something that you are already doing. So for example, um, if I want to, I use this example, actually, we're talking about this in Sunday school today. If I wanted to increase my Bible reading, I might do something like, um, I know that I make a cup of coffee every morning when I get up. And so I might put my Bible next to the coffee machine at night. And then as my coffee is brewing in the morning, I would read scripture for that time period where I'm probably just standing there looking at the coffee machine normally. Instead, I would spend that time reading scripture. So there's a number of really useful strategies. And I I think sometimes we can get into sort of gimmickiness and we can try to affect change by means of gimmicks and and things like that. But the thing to remember is God built our brains and designed our brains in certain ways. And some of those things are uh, features we can leverage to increase our productivity and our spiritual disciplines. So if every time uh, I get a text message from someone, I take time to pray for them. That would be a, a way to have it stack because you always read the text message, you think about it, and then you do something else. So it's a it's a pretty straightforward, easy book. 
Um, I, I think it's worth reading for most people. It's, it's relatively quick. You probably get through it in a week or two if you read 10, 15 minutes a day or something like that, but I'm really enjoying it. And I, I've already found some good habit stacking that I can do to sort of increase my, uh, time in the word and my time in prayer, which is, is always a good thing. I'm glad you're getting stacks on stacks on stacks, stacks on stacks of habits. That's really great. I think sometimes there's a critique that, doing these things is somehow trying to like push against the fall, like capital, the fall, not autumn, but the actual fall in the sinful nature of mankind. However, there's no doubt, I think, as we read the scriptures, even before the fall, that there was regular rhythms, which got built into our lives, which were for our great enjoyment and for our great productivity. So I love stuff like this. And I think that there might be some people listening that would say like, I can't imagine reading anything more boring than like, maybe I'm not a reader. And then you're telling me to read about productivity, which sounds like inception level style of a boring, but this is like a great way for us not to like try to supplant the fact that when we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we can affect change in our lives, but to do the very things in which God has created us to function, to align ourselves better with how he helps us to operate and to focus and there's no doubt that we are creatures of habit, that we do the things. And, and most of the time I say, if you ask somebody, do you want better habits? They probably will say they want to be freed from bad habits or habits sure. that they find like that are less productive. So yeah. I love this recommendation because I'm always finding these things to be very useful in my own life. And especially when we might use them to come alongside and empower us with the Holy Spirit towards spiritual discipline. That's like the ultimate combo, right? Yeah. I mean, that's really the great benefit. It's not like just do more work or get more reading done, but how can we use these things to deepen our prayer closet or to marinate ourselves more in scripture? So again, this idea that somehow the fall maybe like rendered all this innate and now this these habits are somehow a result of the fall, that's just not accurate. Those things haven't been rendered innate. Because, and I want to say emphasis on Nate because... <laughs> of the fall. These are great things that we can kind of lean into and invest in. And I like that. I've read this book. I think it's like super approachable, right? I yeah. mean, it's not like he's, he's laying on you, like all this stuff. Where it's like, let me quote you all these studies and we'll just have an arms chair conversation about all of these yeah. topics that don't actually bring practicality into your life. It's, it's kind of like a little manuscript for rethink the way that you live your life. Yeah. It's kind of more like that. Think about the habits you already have and let's leverage those to do the things that you want to do. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, there's, there's different kinds of like productivity books out there. Some of them are, are almost, are very like self-helpy kind of books. Like I, I read bullet, the bullet journal book and it, the very beginning part of that was very much self-helpy. This is about improving your life. This book has a little bit of like, talk about how, um, the best way to form a habit is not to think about the action, but to start by thinking about your identity. Yeah. So like it, right rather, on. so like an example, and this, some of this is like positive thinking, which is, is true. Like if you think positively, you're more likely to succeed, not in the weird, like charismatic name it and claim it, um, law of attraction type stuff. But if you, if you're wanting to lose weight and you think of yourself as someone who struggles with overeating, then you already have conceptualized your identity as someone who overeats. But if you conceptualize yourself as someone who is um, in the process of losing weight, that's a very subtle change in how you think about yourself, but it, it sort of points you towards a successful outcome rather than presenting yourself as someone who's struggling to reach that outcome. Um, you know, like a simple thing. And, and the other thing I really like about this book is he 
he isn't just giving you like, this is an idea that I had about habits. It is rooted in neuroscience and all sorts of different studies and history and, and all sorts of different elements that give it an air of credibility. And, you know, like there's this funny story, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a new father. And so I'm always thinking about how do I raise August in the fear of admonition of the Lord. And he, one of the chapters, he talks about this, uh, this guy who had a theory about behavioral modification. And in order to test this theory, he found another, a woman who also had a similar theory proposed marriage. And then they had children and they raised their children in a household entirely oriented where chess was like, like the supreme goal for everything. Every gift they got related to it. When they played chess, they praised them. They Everything was oriented towards chess. And the three girls that he had were all like chess prodigies. And one of them was the youngest, youngest grandmaster in history um, for like 27 years until someone else came along. So even little things like that, like how do I structure my household to bring about the effects that I want? Are we going to be a household where... It's just the normal practice that we get up and we eat breakfast. And as we eat breakfast, we talk about scripture or we read the scriptures. Like those kinds of things are surprisingly, uh, let me put it in a theological sense. The reason these things are true is because this is the way God built humans. Right. And if you Not even think around. about, we haven't talked about sacraments in this series, but the, the ordinary means of grace are intended to be processed and done regularly. There's a reason we come every Lord's Day and listen to the sermon and, and study the Word of God and sing and pray. There's a reason that we do the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, whatever that basis or whatever that interval might be, is because God has built us in a way where these kinds of like regular, rhythmic, repeated actions are important for us. And they change us and transform us. They they literally build new pathways in our brains as we do the same thing over and over again. So I think there's a lot of spiritual benefit that can come about from taking a look at a book like this and incorporating some of this habit formation type stuff into your own spiritual disciplines. And we do a lot of this stuff instinctively. There's a reason that we when we want to develop a good Bible reading uh, habit, we try to do it at the same time every day. We try to associate it with something. You know, we use the same Bible. We use a bookmark. All of these things are are oriented towards this sort of habit formation that we innately understand how to do. And this just kind of pulls back the curtain on that from a scientific and a research-based perspective. So I think it's a great book. Um, I think it has really good information about how to break bad habits. I haven't gotten to that chapter yet, but it, it you know, the way that he approaches habit formation, he basically says right up, front, if you want to break a bad habit, you just do everything I'm telling you about making a good habit in backward. You just do it in reverse. Right. Um, and so it, it takes some of the mystery away from that. And it takes some of the, um, I think some of the dauntingness of it when you recognize that really small changes over the course of time can make big improvements. I think the statistic he gives is if you increase whatever your measurement is, if you increase by 1% every day, which doesn't feel like that, that doesn't feel like that much of an increase, you'll actually in increase overall by 37 times, like 37 fold over the course of a year, um, which is is pretty impressive depending on what it is you're, you're trying to change or do. Yeah, that's, um, we probably don't have time for this now because we're just in the affirmation section, but that sometime remind me, I'll, I'll talk about, I have a theory about all this, but it basically comes down to the fact that there's a great benevolence in God in that for whatever reason, he has given to us this inability to properly appreciate compounding. And that's yeah. kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah. And there's 
a transcendence that's reflected in compounding, but also like an eminence as well. Right. So we just tend to underestimate what can be accomplished through ordinary means. And yet God shows himself faithful in the ordinary means to do extraordinary things. And I think there's something both in mathematics and in behavioral traits that all lead to the same end there. So I really, really like that. So I don't encourage anybody that like maybe they should give, give them the title of the book again and the author so that somebody can look it up after we said all this stuff. Yeah, the book is called Atomic Habits and it is written by a guy named James Clear. There are all sorts of workbooks that have similar titles. So just make sure you're getting the actual book first. You may want to buy a workbook later on, but um, Atomic Habits by James Clear. He also has a website with a free newsletter and things like most of these productivity authors do. But uh, check it out. It's good. I think it's going to help you to build some good habits, which is always a good thing. So my affirmation is I'm going to sneak in two websites. It's, I say, I would say more playful and perhaps less useful than what you just, well, <laughs> to some, it might be less useful. I think there's somebody out there that's going to be like, yes, where has this been all my life? And it's been in the same place. Lots of things are in the interwebs. So two websites that I'm affirming with that are like so different from one another. The first one and this will be useful to somebody. I, I've used it a couple of times. My wife does a lot more design work. And so she's, I think, used this quite a bit. But the website is called What the Font. And <laughs> it's myfonts.com. And what this site allows you to do is you can take an image of any font and upload it. And the site will tell you what that font is. Oh, so it's man. really that simple. So for some reason you're in, you find yourself designing or you're looking at something or trying to put something together. And you're like, what is this exactly? Or maybe you've just come across something and you thought that is the weirdest font or doesn't seem to be quite like appropriate or married up to whatever the content is of something that you're looking at. If you're just curious, it's myfonts.com. So it's, it's worth it just for that. And the second website also is something that helps you to demystify something. And this is something that I've used Tony, have you ever looked at, let's say, one of your bank or let's say like a credit card statement and thought as you're looking at the transactions, I have no idea what that is. And it's possible I may have done that, but I have no idea because yeah, the description they, is just cryptic. And it's like a like a magic code that you need to learn Mordor or whatever, black, the black tongue to understand. Yes. It's yes, it's yeah. either like in parcel tongue. We're you just going to mix all the metaphors. You start or it's reading in it and the lights go dim and it's like, I better not say that in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the transaction that may not be named. Yes. So here's another website for everybody. It's called what's that charge.com. And literally what it is, a database, like crowdsource database where you can copy and paste. If you're looking at your online statement, a transaction name, drop it in here and get more information about it. I've used this a couple of times because there have been things that I've done. Let's say like, I don't know, you're purchasing a ticket to an event or something like that. Oh, yeah. Sometimes you'll get like a super weird transaction name and then the transaction will come through and I'll be like, Ooh, somebody's definitely stolen my card. And I'll go in and be like, <laughs> Oh no, that was, that was me. Uh, even though you're like, you're, you're, you know, you're partially sure that it was you and you're like, right. the dollar amount seems to match up, but like somebody could have swiped that. I think somebody in Thailand is buying Xboxes on my <laughs> card all of a sudden. Like, so what's that charge.com is just a really super fun kind of way. And there, you'll find that because it's crowdsourced, you'll get lots of fun information that people will write commentary or like large explanations of like why this thing is named the way it is or you know, I was reading one recently that was from Amazon because I ordered something from Amazon, but it came through kind of funky and I was like, oh yeah, I'm getting scammed. It turns out I wasn't. And then somebody had done all this great research of like, here's why it's named the thing. I talked to, you know, like everybody at Amazon and they gave me the full descriptions and explanations as to why it's called this. And you're kind of like, wow, you 
should get another hobby and maybe some different habits. I can recommend a book, but um, it's just a lovely way to get access to things. So um, I also, this inspired me. I feel like we need the Christian version of the font website, like something Christians have a tendency sometimes like either bulletins or otherwise, like everything they put together, advertisements or otherwise to like use certain types of fonts. I think we need a website called come now font. Come the font. Yes. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, actually, I, I wish that I had known about this website uh, quite a long time ago because, you know, there, there's, um, for example, I have the Society of Reform Podcaster website, and yes. I wanted the font on the website to match a certain logo, and I couldn't figure out which font it was, and so I just did there my you go. best. So I just plugged in our Reform Brotherhood logo into this website and discovered that the most likely match for the lettering that says Reformed Brotherhood on our logo is Perpetua Tilting Bold, followed closely <laughs> by Herman Black. So I'm going to go with Herman Black in honor of Herman Bovink. Nice. But uh, yeah, and it shows you like the the text you have, and then it shows you the same word in the the fonts that you you know it thinks it probably is close to. And a lot of times, like you have a custom font, like that, I think that's probably what happened in our case. Right. Is our our logo was designed by Paul Cox, who does um, uh, Reformation tunes, ref tunes. I'm sure that this is not like a standard font. I'm sure it's a somewhat customized font. So I'm never going to get exactly the same font, but this will help me find something similar. So if I wanted to have a website uh, that ma- the font matched the logo, I would be much closer to picking. A- that's. Exactly. I think this is awesome. This is great. Yes. I love this. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a nerdy thing. And it's certainly, uh, again, file that under what a time to be alive that we are trying to figure out and match up fonts. But that's exactly what I've come across is sometimes I'm working, let's say I'm working, even you're working at something at work and your company has a logo and you're thinking, yeah. I'd like to match the heading to this as best I can. The fact that it's that specific and it tries to give you the next best match means you can come up with something that's close. And of course, like presentation matters for lots of things in life. So this is just a great way to marry that up a little bit yeah. and maybe get some greater consistency in whatever you're, whatever you're working on. All right. So enough of that, enough of credit card charges and come thou font. What are you denying against? Well, I think anyone who looks at the calendar and knows our show is going to recognize that it is what I like to call don't be a pirate November. So I'm denying (laughs) no quarter November, which is the annual, I don't even know what to call it, but uh, basically Doug Wilson uh, and his cadre of people had decided sometime in time immemorial uh, that in November, they won't add the normal qualifications to things uh, that they usually do. And so instead of um, saying something inflammatory and then offering some sort of qualification, uh, they they just won't offer that qualification. So for some reason, they think it's a good idea to just be inflammatory. Uh, so I don't know that I have much more to say about it, except, you know, there's this there's this rule of the Internet. Don't feed the trolls. And sometimes I wonder what would happen if like the entire reformed world just ignored Doug Wilson, just ignored him completely. Like, would he just, would he just like shrivel up and go away in terms of like, would his, his footprint on the internet just kind of evaporate? I think probably it would, because although, although uh, Doug's 
following is very loud. And so that makes it feel like it's very large. It actually is not nearly as numerically large as you might expect when you, uh, when you think about how loud it is. So for don't be a pirate November, my suggestion is just don't share that video. Don't click that link. I know that he's going to set something on fire and there's going to be all sorts of discussion about it. Last year was a boat. The year before was a couch. It's probably going to be like a uh, like a whole house or something this year. But just like don't share the link. Don't <laughs> click on the video. Don't read the article. Just let it go. Let let. How about this is no Doug Wilson November. Let's just do that instead. And I'm recording this on in October, so I can still do the entirety of no Doug Wilson November. That's true. I probably won't just because I know myself, but I could still. Maybe that's my, maybe that'll be my new year's resolution this year. That's true. No, this is good as time as any, because we're about to head into the month and you can, you're setting us up. You're giving us the opportunity to think about this. Would you say it would be good to pair that with no shave November? No, there's never a good time to do no shave November. Well, I feel like that's just really great habit stacking. Oh yeah. I see what you did there. (laughs) Yeah. Live podcasting folks. No, you could do that. I mean, if you're already going (laughs) to give something up for November, then just add Doug Wilson to it. Like when you're not shaving, you're also thinking, you know what I'm not going to do during this time, during this entire month is participate in the Doug Wilson nonsense. It's I just true. won't do it. It's true. I won't do it. Yep, I'm going to let just, my hair grow and I'm going to let him go. Yep. Just let it, let it go like a Disney princess. Just don't, don't bother with it. I've totally, I was going to make a joke and I've totally lost my mind. I've lost. What is that Disney film? I've just lost it. It's frozen. Frozen. Yeah. There we go. He let it go. You let it go. Yeah, that's perfect, actually. That's really good. Honestly, I mean, I, I feel like you cut to, cut to Paul, him saying like, this is what I meant when I was saying like, live in peace. Like sometimes yeah. like, do, do not take offense is like the the Pauline frozen version of just let it go. Yeah. Um, what, what No Shave November really tells me is that Doug Wilson fully recognizes <laughs> that for most of the year, he's publishing things that of course, are, of are course. radically offensive and radically lend themselves to misunderstanding uh, because he, he recognizes that he has to add a million qualifiers and a million, he calls them emoluments. Like he, he has to add basically like ointment to his, uh, his articles and his statements. Uh, and he, he just won't do that for a month out of the year. And, you know, when I look at the qualifications for elder, you know, not being pugnacious, not, not being a brawler, right. not being a striker, like not right. being quarrelsome. Those are all qualifications for elders. And when, when 12 months or 11 months out of the year, you have to intentionally not cause controversy with your statements. And there's, you allow yourself one month of the year to basically just be a jerk and not qualify that and have unapologetic jerkiness. Uh, it really, it really doesn't bode well for you. So just say no to Doug Wilson. Friends don't let friends, Doug Wilson, uh, what other kinds of slogans can we toss on top of that? Well, the thing that's so disturbing to me about this is it not, not only does it in some ways make like in a gratuitous sense, this idea that somehow being offensive should be celebrated yeah. or that, he is purposely all year long exerting great effort to try to be kind. And this is what he is owed to kind of have this. It's all clickbait, right? Because in the yeah. end of the day, I'm, I'm not sure he even believes any of that stuff. But the, the challenge and the standard that the scripture gives to us, I mean, speaking about law, is that we would always have all of our conversations seasoned with salt, always and in every way. So there's, it's just odd to like deviate from that purposefully and somehow try to celebrate that deviation. Yeah. 
Yeah. That seems backwards in almost every way that I can think about it. And especially in the way that the scripture tells us or instructs us to live. So it's just really hard to get behind the idea and not say like, how is this not just sensationalism? How is this not, of course, and if that's true, then just call it what it is right. and leave ever, leave all of us alone. Yeah. We could just call it extra inflammatory, drive up my click revenue November. <laughs> well, let, lest we turn this into our own uh, needlessly oh, inflammatory great. bash session, what are you uh, What are you denying this month or this week? I'm going to go with the calendar as well, and uh, I'll make this brief, but something that I've been thinking about a lot more recently, but I've always come, something that's always been on my mind about this this time of year, of course. So in, in most of the Western world, we're going to celebrate or we are celebrating something called Halloween. And that comes with all kinds of attendant baggage uh, for lots of people. And everybody has a kind of a different view on its celebration or what we should do or what we shouldn't do. And so let me say this. I've been thinking a lot recently. I was in a conversation with some brothers and sisters at church. And they were just talking about having an increased sensitivity as they've grown closer to Jesus with the holiday and with some of the things that are celebrated. And I thought, you know what? That's the right attitude that we're not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater on this one. So for instance, let, let me show, present the good. I received some amazing pictures of my little nephew who was dressed as a pumpkin and probably like the most adorable costume yeah. I've ever seen in my entire life. Makes you and hurt. Yeah. I, it, it was super painful. Yeah. I would, I would love for him to show up at my door every day of <laughs> October Wearing that costume because it's just, it's so adorable. It it is painful in the in the most glorious way. And so like to to just have fun uh being with others and to meet our neighbors again, maybe in yeah. a different way, and to reach out to our community. I have no issue with this whatsoever. I think actually there's a lot that can be redeemed in that. However, there is a line and this line of crossing over into let me say it this way: don't mess with dark spiritual realities. That's yeah. basically what I'm saying is like, there is a sense in which I think Christians have perhaps embraced that a little bit too much. And so I've just said, well, it's all, it's all in good fun. There's a lot that isn't good fun and that is fine. Yeah. There's a lot where we just got to be careful. I think we got to be careful what we watch, be careful what we put in front of our children. We're going to be careful how we explain what it is that's going on. And there's just so much out there that are these dark realities where I think, you know, spiritual warfare is absolutely real. And I'm not trying to be overly charismatic, except that Jesus himself gave us this pattern right. and this example to be watchful, to be mindful, and to be appreciative of the fact that the spiritual reality in the realm and the battle that takes place there is a known quantity that impacts our lives. And so I don't want to give the devil any kind of foothold in that area. And I see that all too often the case sometimes especially this time of year. So we need to celebrate what is good and wholesome and to have a little bit of fun, uh, especially, I mean, I think you just have to post that picture of August somewhere at this point, <laughs> because it's like the most adorable pumpkin I've ever seen in my entire life. So I think there's this thing called a continuity or a continuum uh, fallacy. And what right. the, what the continuum fallacy says is if you can't, if you can't delineate clearly where one thing becomes another, therefore that distinction is not valid. So it, it might be like um, if you can't tell when um, this is a silly example, but this is the one that was always used in logic class. 
ironically, um, if you can't tell the difference between being buzzed and being drunk, then there's really no difference between being buzzed and being drunk, right? Right. Well, that's not true. I mean, th- those words don't have objective definitions. It's it's not like there's some sort of objective marker, but there is still a difference between those two things. And just because you can't clearly identify what those two what that difference is, doesn't mean there is no difference. And I think where this applies, where I, I'm applying this to this concept is. It's not my job to be the Holy Spirit in your life in reference to what kind of costume you let your kid dress up as, right? Right. Maybe your kid really loves the Wizard of Oz, and so they want to dress up as the Wicked Witch of the West, and so they go buy a witch costume at, at Spirit Halloween or whatever the mall costume shop is. That may or may not be okay for your family. It's not my job to tell you whether that is. It's not, you know, that's a that's a, a prudence issue that you need to think about. But the fact that that issue is sort of in that gray of the continuum, whether it's okay to dress up as like, or like maybe I'm a Marvel fan, I want to dress up as Thor. Okay, well, am I dressing up like a pagan deity or a space alien? I don't know. Maybe it's right. both. Maybe it's it's both and. The fact that we can't clearly delineate where on the spectrum it becomes dangerous and sinful doesn't mean there isn't a point where it's dangerous and sinful. So I totally echo that. Just be careful. Be be careful and be wise and flee every appearance of evil. I think that's yes, the principle right we on. need to remember. Um, it's not my job to tell you what appearance of evil is. It's not my job to tell you whether you're fleeing it properly or not. But the Bible tells us to flee every appearance of evil. And so we have to be careful with this stuff because it can it can have long-lasting real implications if you play with spiritual matters and and you get right. burned by it. So I, I agree right. with you all day long. Yeah. And this is one of those things where I've just benefited from really lovely and amazing parents. So especially like shout out to my, my mother. So this idea that I like, here's the thing I'm thinking like, if your culture one day a year allows you to go through your neighborhood and collect free candy from your neighbors, those whom you live by, you ought to do that thing because that's pretty awesome. So it's more about this idea of, so in other words, I'm saying like, just because you want to go out and collect that candy doesn't mean you're participating in this really you know, kind of grand like pagan event. Right. It's really, really more about like, again, the intent behind the content, like yeah. all, what, what is it that you're doing? And my mother was always really good that she uh, supported us wanting to dress up, but we were, we never dressed up in things that were like overtly spiritual, no, yeah. never a dark thing. It was actually more to celebrate fun things. And I have great memories of that. And I think actually, to be honest with you, those costumes elicited a lot more joy from those who saw them because they were not like overtly dark or gory or weird. Yeah. I, we, we dressed as dinosaurs and clowns and, and, and for many years, my mother uh, made our costumes. And so yeah. I, I look back on that. I think that was just a really amazing thing. So I think there's a lot here and I'm not necessarily making a case for like, well, redeem all the times. Like, right. uh, yeah, sure. If you want to, or just go have some good fun and meet the right. people that you live with yeah. and minister to them in ways that are wholesome without making this weird and it, without getting involved in really overtly, potentially dangerous spiritual realities. Just don't invite that stuff into your life. And yet there's a lot that you can do to, to have fun. So I commend you guys with putting on August a really super sweet jack-o'-lantern costume. It was adorable. Yeah. And and instead of giving out Bible tracts and a tiny piece of candy, <laughs> right, 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 consider giving out a full-size candy bar and being generous and then having a conversation about the gospel when someone almost invariably someone will strike up a conversation with you 
about, wow, this house is giving up about full-size candy bars this year. That's pretty generous of you. Oh, well, I just want to be generous because Christ was generous to me. Like, you, like yeah, amen. We, you can say if that. You, yeah, and if you don't want to do that, if you just want to give out regular fun-size candy bars and say happy Halloween, then do that too. Like, there's no law here. There's no, uh, there's no prescription in the Bible on how to handle this kind of thing specifically. So just be wise and prudent and use good Christian judgment. Yeah, that's really great, actually, because there is no law about that, but there is a law. Yes. See what I did there? There is. <laughs> and that law has three uses. So, And one of those uses does, may speak to a situation like this. It does have three uses. And we should say up front, or let me say, I'm going to say up front, I have this somewhat small pet peeve. I understand very little Hebrew. I haven't studied Hebrew like explicitly, but one of my little pet peeves about Hebrew or the way that we at least we speak about it in the English language. I'm sensing is, some Chad Bird coming through here. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit like this. It's just the understanding that when we're talking about the law, we are talking about the Torah. We're talking about, which, which means explicitly teaching. I mean, we're talking yeah. about all of the teaching of God. Yes, exactly. So we're not just, of course, the 10 commandments, the 10 words are part of that law, but it's not as if that encapsulates all the law that the scripture talks to us about. So we're talking about the teaching of God and we do need to properly distinguish between law and gospel. And we're going to get there, but to preempt just a little bit for the sake of this conversation in brief, I would say that the law commands and the gospel promises. That's the easiest way that I kind of begin to build some proper definition between those two things. So we don't conflate them. And the law is what we do. And the gospel is what Christ has done for us. So the law in its first sense is going to reveal God's requirement for eternal life, perfection. We've talked about even heaven and saying it is God's heaven. Right. And so if he says, when you show up there, why should I let you in? It, he has a right to say that because it is his in the same way that God is giving us a requirement for life. And that requirement is reflected in the law. So to set this up just a little bit, and you'll find, I think that if you go Google this, do a little bit of research, especially in the reformed tradition of theological discourse, what you're going to find is that these three uses of the law, first of all, you'll find that to be a ubiquitous reference. You might find a little bit of nuance in the way each of those uses are described. Everybody almost has their own little flavor, as it were, but they end up in something like this. The first use is pedagogical. That is the sense of instruction or like almost like a schoolmaster. The second would be, I've heard it called civil or moral, a societal influence. We're not talking about theories of the atonement, but we're talking again about the uses of the law. And the last would be normative, which is kind of like a fancy way for saying, how does this apply to the Christian life? So the first thing we're just going to presume up front is that everybody's with us that there are three uses of right. the law. And so let's get into then why we're saying there are three uses and then unpack these, the pedagogical, the civil moral, and the normative piece. Yeah, and I think it's important um, to recognize when we talk about the three uses of the law, Jesse's absolutely right that the the law in the Old Testament is broader than just the Ten Commandments or whatever, But when we talk about the three uses of the law, we're specifically talking about the three uses of the moral law. So we're not going to do, at least we probably are not going to do an episode. We don't always plan this out, but we're not going to do an episode on the threefold division of the law in the Old Testament. Um, But broadly speaking, there's the moral law, there's the civil law, and there's the ceremonial law. Right, so there's right. there's three three kinds of laws that are given to us in the the first five books of the Bible. Predominantly is where we find this, um, but what we're talking about specifically is the moral law itself. So the moral law is baked into creation. It's a reflection of God's nature. It simply is the moral nature of God 
woven into creation, because how else would God create a world except one that is in line with and reflects his moral law? So for example, God couldn't create a world where murder is, murder is good. Because right. God is a God is the living God, and so His moral nature pervades the the creation such that life is is good, and the, the unjust taking of life is bad. So when we're talking about the three uses of the law, we're talking about those those specific laws which are summarily comprehended in the in the Ten Commandments. Right. So we're not just talking about the Ten Commandments; we're talking about the moral law, which is was. Uh, summarized in the Ten Commandments. And so you're right. There are these three different distinctions. And what's what sometimes is tricky about this is you'll hear lots of talk about the third use of the law, which gives you this impression that there's this really set standard ordering of the law. But the right. first and second use of the law, you hardly ever hear them referred to as the first or second use of the law, because th- which one is listed first and which one is listed second is... Uh, flip-flopped all the time. Really what it is, is there's a, there's a law, there's a use of the law that is for the non-Christian, which we would say is the pedagogical use, right? There's the, uh, there's the use of the law, which is for society as a whole, which is the, the civic um, use or the political use or the moral use. And then there's a use of the law, which is for the Christian. And so this threefold division is not necessarily something that you find an explicit reference to or threefold use in the scripture, but what you find is the law is applied to each of these uh, categories or groupings of people is applied to those groupings in scripture. And so this is a deduction from scripture where we see predominantly in the apostolic testimony, but we see it in the Old Testament too, you see the application of the law taking on these kind of three flavors. Right, so Paul in Galatians talks about how the law is a schoolmaster, which convicts of sin and leads us to Christ. Well, that's the right. pedagogical use for for the for the pre-regenerate uh, elect. It convicts us of our sin. It shows us how far we fall in, how far short we fall of the standard, and it drives us to Christ. Romans thirteen, where Paul says that the the uh, the government, the governing authorities are ordained for God's purposes. And they're to apply the power of the sword to to punish good or punish evil and reward good. Well, that's the moral use. And so we'll we'll talk about in other episodes, probably when we get to like different cultural theories and different theories of government that that systematic theology talks about, we'll talk about how it is that the government receives or appropriates that law. But the government, the, the ruling authority, the civic authorities utilize the moral law in structuring society and restraining sin. There's a reason right. every society on earth has recognized that murder is wrong and has punished murder. Because a society that doesn't recognize that murder is wrong and punish murder won't be a society for very long because everybody will kill everybody else. And then, of course, there's this third use. And the third use is not um, not exclusively reformed, but it does take a pretty particular flavor in the Reformed world that is slightly different than what you might see from a Lutheran who's kind of getting at the same same right. thing when they're referencing the law, but for some historical reasons, they don't want to necessarily talk about the law in the same way. And that third use is as a rule of faith and practice for the Christian. So all of these uses are important. They all play a role, and it's not as though... We look at the Bible and say this this part of the moral law is the pedagogical use, and this part of the moral law is 
the civic use. All of God's law is applicable to each of these categories, and it does something different in each of these categories, even though it's the same law across all three of them. Yes, that's really good. I, I like that emphasis. This idea that the law has hegemony. So whether or not we like the law, it is doing what it is supposed to do. It affects its own purpose by the power of God. And that purpose, though, has these kind of nuanced influences. And so it's helpful, I think, to distinguish. And to your point, I like this, the idea that the influence of those different pieces hits us differently depending whether or not we're in Christ or not. So again, like the law has a superiority over all of us as human beings. And yet it's possible to say that for the non-Christian, the pedagogical kind of influence of the law is just condemning, it's damning. But for the Christian, it leads to this destruction of self self, and this running forward to the Savior who fulfills the pedagogical purpose and therefore empowers that for greater, well, well, essentially for salvation. And then of course, for greater living out in a place where we're no longer trying to win over our merit before God, but therefore we are just obedient because he has saved us for good works, works not because of good works. So yeah. I like what you're saying, because it's if to say, basically, I would say the, the first two uses of the law are really bad news for the unbeliever, but they could yeah. be good news for the Christian. And in fact, yeah. like the pain that's inflicted from the sharp edge of the pedagogical and the civil moral piece is the the edge that drives us to the Savior who fulfills those first two purposes and consummate unity and harmony so that we might be the righteousness of God. And without understanding those first two uses, I think there is a cheapening of that grace of God, which we've spoken about before. So it's really helpful, I think, to, in other words, we're not like trying to bifurcate things or trifurcate things for the sake of adding additional complexity, but merely because to your point, the application that the scripture draws from itself in how the law is manifest in daily living is in these three areas. And so it's helpful then to think about it in a fully orbed or fully robust kind of way. So I actually think that this helps strengthen our understanding, our doxology, our worship and appreciation of the Lord Jesus Christ in particular. And that does start with this idea of the first use, you know, so, you know, pedagogically we're speaking, you know, pedagogy and this idea of like teaching instruction. And I would say like that first use of the law is really to destroy this sense of spiritual superiority or like narcissism, which is natural and is always inside of us. And the law in that sense destroys our own self-righteousness and arrogance. It puts the old Adam to death. And in it, we're going to realize that God does not accept us just as we are. This is another pet peeve I have. Like this idea that like, well, God just accepts you as you are, not according to his law, because his law tells you what is acceptable to him. Yeah. And so uh, outside of Christ, we don't have a, a chance to stand on judgment day. God's law requires perfect obedience and no fallen son or daughter of Adam can attain that. So in of ourselves, we're without hope. And so again, just to say, well, you know, the law is there to remind us or instruct us in sin. What does that mean if we don't understand that there's a pedagogical, like schoolmaster, like slapping you on the knuckles with a ruler to say, you cannot stand before this holy God. And if you try somehow to manufacture your own righteousness and we lift up that righteousness as it were next to the standard, you will always and all the time lose. Yeah. And that really is like the first use of the law. 
Yeah. One of the things that I think is a common misconception about the first use too, and I've, I've made this mistake just when I'm speaking off the cuff. And so I think it's, this is just another one of those, uh, to go back to my habits, uh, affirmation. Stacks on stacks. We also form habits in ways of speaking. And so it's important to like recite important theological points and formulate a way to say them because then when you're speaking off the cuff, you don't necessarily, uh, you don't run the same risk of saying it improperly. And so sometimes when you read about the first use of the law, you'll see like there's the first use and it's this pedagogical use. And this use is different for Christians than it is for the non-believer. And I even almost kind of spoke that way when I was introducing this. Properly speaking, the law doesn't do anything in the first use. It convicts mm. you of your sin, but it, it never, even for the Christian, it is not the law which is bringing you to faith. It's not the law which is bringing you to salvation. It's not the law that's True. doing anything except pointing out your, your how far short you fall of God's standard. It's the gospel that brings you to salvation. Right and on. so we have to be careful when we're talking about the first use of the law, not to somehow give the law a power to accomplish something other than to to kill the sinner, right? That's that's what the law does. It convicts the sinner. For the reprobate, then the spirit uses that knowledge of the destitution of, of the sinner to drive us to Jesus Christ and to allow us to, to embrace Christ as offered in the gospel. But I think this is an important thing for us to remember. And I think Calvin says it well, and I'm going to quote Calvin on each of these, partially because he's he's Calvin and he just phrases it so well, but also because I want people to see this is not some uh, this is not some extra reformed structure that gets imposed right. on top of reformed theology. Sometimes people will say like this: this division of the law into its three uses or into its three kinds of law is foreign to the classic reform sources. So Calvin says this in Institutes. Um, Let's see, it's Institutes Book uh, Institutes Book 2, Chapter 7, and it's Section 6. He says, um, oh, I just lost it. Uh, sorry, it's Chapter 7, and in Section 6 of Chapter 7, he says, The whole matter may be made clear. Let us take a succinct view of the office and use of the moral law. Now, this office and use seems to me to consist in three parts. Then in, verse, in Section 7, he separates out this pedagogical use. He says, Thus the law is a kind of mirror. As in a mirror we discover any stains upon our face, so in the law we behold first our impotence, then, in consequence of it, our iniquity, and finally the curse as the consequence of both. And just like a mirror, the mirror doesn't do anything to give you the power to clean up your face. It simply allows right. you to see the, the, the blemish or the, the stain on your face. It's not as though looking in the mirror somehow gives me the things I need. If I have a big oil smudge on my face, let's say I was out working on the lawnmower or the car and I've got a big oil smudge on my face and I walk in and I see the mirror and I don't have water and soap and a rag, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do just because I see it to clean it up. So the, the, the first use of the law in the sort of this ordering we'll call it Calvin's ordering, the first use or office of the law is purely revelatory. It just simply tells you something. It tells you that you have fallen short of the law, and it it tells you that the consequence of that is a curse and damnation. That's what it does. Right. And we, we should never—this is a, a, this is a common— uh, error. When we get to theonomy, I think we'll talk more about this when we we talk about theonomy in this sequence. But a common error in theonomy is a confusion of this first 
use of the law, as well as the second use of the law, and a blending of the distinction between law and gospel in these things. So theonomy sometimes will articulate that you can structure society in a way that advances the gospel by structuring society in a righteous way and increases the righteousness of a nation. Well, the righteousness of a nation can only be increased by the gospel itself, not the law. So I think it's really, really key for us to to see this. And this law-gospel confusion does not lend itself as much in the other uses, because the other uses are, are I think, are clearer in terms of how they, how they fit into the life of the state or the life of the Christian. But this first use, sometimes people can act as though it is somehow giving people power. It gives the Christian power because they know the law, and that's just not the case. Yeah, I'm pausing here because what uh, some people may not know is that apparently you and I have a contest that happens on <laughs> some particular episodes. And I guess that contest is to figure out who can get to the super sweet Calvin references first from the <laughs> Institute. And I also had 2.7 pulled up uh, with Logos Bible Software. Not yes. a sponsor of this episode, but it's that's true. where I got it. Little side note. And, I do have my yes. feature review for Logos 10 is now available on the website, reformbrotherhood.com slash Logos 10. Oh, nice. Logos dash 10, I think is the actual URL. But uh, yeah, I also use Logos. They have a really neat little theological word book entry on the three uses of the law. So yeah, I they definitely do. And so here is me beating you to the next one when we talk about the second use of the law. So that, that's all right on. And and you're right. I think that uh, there's a lot here that Calvin has to say. He's he's done a good job of kind of organizing thoughts around this, and it's super helpful. So you can go. Everybody can go check that out. But so let's then move into like the second use of the law. So. The second use of the law, I would say, is like intended, and this is going to sound weird, so everybody stick with me for just a second, because this sounds super weird, is intended to, I would say, like protect our society from evil people who would cause us harm, which I know sounds weird, so let me invoke Calvin before Tony gets to it, (laughs) and this is from the same chapter. So Calvin writes, the second office of the law is, by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment, to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for rectitude and justice, end quote. So this kind of goes back to, I like what you said at the beginning, the top of this whole conversation, this idea that like somehow the universe, the fabric of the universe is the moral moral law of God. Like they, they're inseparable. You can't rip them apart to rip one apart would be to like destroy everything. Again, I think there's a, like a Marvel reference in there somewhere, but (laughs) it would be to destroy everything altogether. So commandments, things like do not murder, do not steal, don't commit adultery. Those are all examples of natural law. I think C.S. Lewis talked about this quite a bit. This idea of, to some extent, like there are universal principles at play here. That is like every culture is going to admire truthfulness and fidelity. So where does that come from? In fact, this is where we get like the more proof of God as a kind of a way of trying to substantiate or to explain that God himself exists in all areas. So these aspects of the law seem to be, and I'm really hedging there, they are written in all human hearts. That's Adventures in Romans 2. Right. So it's intended to restrain evil and promote this kind of harmonious existence in our world. The moral law, this is from the Westminster Larger Catechism, because I'm afraid that Tony's going to go there and beat me in question 95. (laughs) So I'm just going to say it right now. This is from the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 95. The moral law 
is of use to all men to inform them of the holy nature of the will of God and of their duty, binding them to walk accordingly. So I'm going to take a breath there. And because I'm hopeful that I've exhausted every resource that you could beat me to. Well, there's, there's a lot out there, <laughs> Yes, but uh, hopefully that's a good starting point. Yeah. I think, I think at this point, because we're, I'm looking at the clock and realizing we're, we're going to run out of time. We'll postpone a little bit more in-depth talk of the, the civil use of the law Yes, because yes. further down in this, in this series, we have a whole sequence of episodes talking about different different theories i'm kind of hedging it more in terms of culture but things like theonomy uh two kingdoms right. theology There's transformationalism right so we'll talk about i think what we'll do is we'll talk about how the civil law the civil use of the law is seen differently in each of those views but i i think you're right like the the civil law is simply is the uh, the ruling authorities, God's ordained servants, right? Romans 13. It simply is their appropriation of the moral law, which is accessible to them by the light of nature, and then application right on. of that on societies. And God, God has graciously given us societies that are structured almost instinctively according to the moral law. And the more, this is this is a sometimes controversial statement, so hopefully we don't get canceled because of it. Um, societies and cultures that more closely reflect a structuring that is in accord with the moral law will flourish. They, they just will. Like Western mm. society, Western culture, yes. which is built on a Judeo-Christian ethical principle— simply historically has flourished more than nomadic cultures that are based on kind of uh you might want to call them like laws of power right who the strongest person is the one who makes the laws according to their whims it's the reason why uh a failed nation state that is governed by a strong man devolves into anarchy and the flourishing is minimal but a, a society that's governed according to rules which are structured according to the observations of nature the moral fabric of nature simply thrives more so we'll talk more about that when we get there and it's it's only going to be you know three five weeks away something like that but i want to make sure we get to this third use too and we've already covered a lot of this in our sanctification series and when we talked about right. good work so some of this is review too and in uh, section 12 of that same chapter Here's what Calvin says. He says, the third use of the law being also the principal use and more closely connected with its proper end. That's an important thing, and we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit. Has respect to believers in whose heart the Spirit of God already flourishes and reigns. For although the law is written and engraven on their hearts by the finger of God, that is, although they are so influenced and actuated by the Spirit that they desire to obey God, there are two ways in which they still profit in the law. And then he goes on to say that the, those two ways are more or less that it, it shows us the, the pathway and the way to live righteously. Right. And it also shows us what it is to be made in the image of Christ. So it's kind of two effects of or two two uh, facets of the same thing, right? It shows us what it's like to be Jesus because Jesus is the perfect standard of the moral law because he lived his life according to that moral law. And I think an, uh, this is another one of those things that theonomy misses, but a lot of people miss. The moral law was most properly ordered to the benefit of God's people in demonstrating and demonstrating righteousness. And like the first use of the law, it is a mistake for us to treat the law in its third use as though it gives us any power to accomplish it. It still is just revelatory. It's entirely 
a, de- a, a demonstrative law. It tells us something, it, it reveals truth to us, but it gives us no power to bring about that truth. So sometimes you do hear Christians talking about how the law, the law is sanctifying. Well, no, the law is not sanctifying. Even in its third use, the law doesn't sanctify us. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us and right empowers on. us to live according to the law, but it is not the law itself. It's not even proper to say, in my opinion, it's not even really proper to say that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us through the law. That's that's right. not even even what it is. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, full stop. An effect of that sanctification is that we are enabled more and more to live unto righteousness. Well, the only the only way we know what that living unto righteousness means and looks like is by reflecting upon and learning from the moral law. So we'll get into more of those discussions about the second and third use. That will kind of weave into not only our future discussions in the next couple of weeks about the law itself, but also when we start to talk about different understandings of society and government and stuff like that, that will all play into and will be affected by our understanding of the law. So I think this was important as kind of an introductory episode, not just an introduction to the law as a sort of topic of study, but an introduction to all sorts of things that are coming down the pike. And I'm really excited you can probably hear it in my voice. I'm really excited because we're starting to get back into ground that we haven't really covered before on the show. Right. So it's not as though this is brand new. We, we've mentioned things like this. This topic has come up as auxiliary, secondary things. But for example, we've never done an, a, a full episode on you know, Two Kingdoms Theology or what might be called Reformed Two Kingdoms Theology. We've never done a full episode on that. I think we did an episode on theonomy, but it's been a long time. So I'm excited yeah. for us to kind of like jump into this subject a little bit because it's it's new ground for the show. And that's why this is good. Like we said, prolegomenates. It's an amuse-bouche of the law. It's just a little taste of all these things that we ought to consider and just to think about, and this are this is a helpful exercise. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It is a spiritual exercise, and it is an exercise of discipline in terms of how should this translate into our lives so that it somehow per, becomes pervasive in our behavior from day to day. And it does seem to, there is kind of an outsized emphasis on the third use of the law. Yeah. I mean, the third use of the law, as we said, is really only for regenerate Christians. It does not apply to unbelievers. Yes. And when we use this idea of saying it's normative, that's again, the kind of the colloquial way of different differentiating that third piece. When we state that something is normed, of course, we mean that it's patterned after something. And this aspect of the law reveals God's righteous will for our lives. We are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. That's Ephesians 2. So when we state that believer that a believer is like not under the law, what we mean is that he's not under the law as a covenant of works, as a means of salvation. However, as Christians, we do not lay aside the law because in faith, we seek to uphold the law by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So we're not throwing everything out here. In fact, we're leaning into it all the more because we strive to uphold the law, not again as that means of salvation, but because it reflects who we are as new creations, children of God. So like, yeah. hopefully this unites some of the things we've been talking about. One, this idea that you put at the top of this conversation, this idea that, again, the fabric of the universe is reflected as the the moral law of God. And then two, if you go back a couple episodes, we talked at length about what it means to be a new creation. And so I think actually here we have everything kind of drawing together, like being cinched up, this idea that we're not forsaking the law. 
In fact, the law that became the schoolmaster, the taskmaster that once educated us, put us down, beat us in submission. And man, don't even get me started again on like Pilgrim's Progress and Moses <laughs> speeding the heck out of you know Christian on his walk. Everybody go look that up. But that's the best example of like the first use of the law. And yeah. then by the time we get to the end here, what we see is that that first use, that Moses, we have to look over our shoulder because he's coming for us with a stick to say like, this was the standard. And I am, I have every authority to punish you because you did not uphold the standard. There we find in the mercy of Jesus Christ who comes and fulfills that and then goes to this death, this ignominious death, this death by which he he scorns the cross, but he looks forward to it by saying like there was joy set before him. And then he conquers death so that we might have this third use of the law, which is to say it becomes normative of its application by example of our savior. And in that application by the power of the Holy Spirit, we seek to uphold it, not by our own energy or effort, but because we've already been saved from it. And so we obey it because Christ has empowered us to do that. And because now as new creations, as really human beings living in the way that human beings ought to live in so much as we can here on this earth, even as sin plagues us, we find that we come underneath it as no longer this taskmaster or the schoolmaster, schoolmaster that is seeking to wrap our knuckles but as one because it brings now abundant life yeah. and because we find in it joy and peace and great reward and unity and community with our Savior. This is like an amazing thing that I think, again, the Reformed tradition does a really good job at explaining so that when we see the Torah, when we see the teaching, we see these three uses and that leads us into just greater worship and greater yeah. appreciation for our Savior and who we are in our Savior. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good word. Well, I'm really looking forward to the next several weeks of kind of reflecting on law on sort of a theoretical level. And then we're going to get into church culture, Christianity culture kinds of things. And then we'll, we'll talk about the the law itself, like the, the actual Ten Commandments and what they mean. So yes. I'm looking forward to what we have coming down the pipe. We're going to step sort of outside of the systematic theology realm when we talk about some of this stuff, but it's all part of the same overarching kind of doing the basics of Christianity kind of stuff. So um, if you are not subscribed to the podcast and somehow you're listening to this, I don't know, somebody like downloaded an episode and mailed it to you on a flash drive. I don't know. I don't know how people <laughs> find podcasts. I always hear podcasts talking about make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And I'm like, how are you listening to a podcast you're not already subscribed to? But I guess somehow people do it. So if you're not subscribed to the podcast, go to pod, uh, you know, Apple Podcasts or uh, whatever they're calling it these days, iTunes or any, any podcast directory and subscribe to our show because we've got a lot of really good stuff in the back catalog. We've got a lot of really good stuff coming down the pipe in the I don't know, front catalog, whatever you call it. And... Um, <laughs> We really think that God has a lot of really great things to say in his word, and that's really what this show is about. So check it out. Uh, subscribe to it. Make sure you check out that review of Logos, uh, reformbrotherhood.com slash Logos dash 10. Uh, highlight kind of several significant features. And then, of course, there's a link to get a discount on a Logos 10 upgrade or base package. Uh, and then also, we still do have the Reform Brotherhood Telegram chat, and there's still a really active... True ongoing conversation that happens on a daily basis. Um, so if you have questions, you want to follow up on something that one of us said on the show, or you just want to chat, 
um, or you want to share a prayer request, there's a lot of really great brothers and sisters in there. And it ranges everything from talking about TV shows and movies to serious prayer requests. And one thing that I can tell you that I think is unique about this group that I haven't experienced in other social media interactions that I've had is it is not uncommon for a prayer request to come up in that group. And then a few days or a few weeks later for someone to actually say, Hey, I prayed for you about this. Can you give us an update? Which is a, it's a really, really sweet blessing of fellowship that I just haven't seen elsewhere. So you can join that by going to t.me slash reform brotherhood. And, uh, yeah, I think that's all of the kind of end show advertising stuff that I have. Here's what would make me feel really good about our ability to communicate both in this episode and the ones that are ahead is if we can convince people to start calling it LNG. LNG. Yes. Because like the so the the Lutherans kind of kind of have this corner on referring to law and gospel. Yeah. That they would say that's their jam. It's everybody's jam, Lutherans. Listen, we see you. We love you. We appreciate you. Scott it's Clark just punched a hole in the sheetrock in his house because you said that. <laughs> It's not Lutheran. It's not a Lutheran distinctive. <laughs> exactly. Like it's it's everybody's, but I feel like it's like it's cooler to be like, I mean, you can't make the gospel cooler, so this is already uh, anathema, but to to be able to call it just like LNG. I just like that. LNG. Because again, the Lutherans have kind of like coined the law and gospel stuff. So what I, I really feel like we need is LNG. somebody needs to create a mixed drink and call it the LNG. <laughs> Instead of a GNT, it's the LNG. Yes. I was thinking about that, the GNT and the VNT. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking. So maybe we should uh, vouchsafe that to our distilling theology brethren, yes. like that they should Blake come homework. up with it. Yes. Like, listen, all right, boys, you've been advised. You need to come up with the LNG. I don't know what it looks like, but it's got to be true. sweet and sour. Yeah. It's got to be delicious, <laughs> but hard hitting. You know what I mean? Yes. Like it's sweet and sour. Is, I like that. Yeah. It's got to have gotta an aggressive be, front uh, and then a sweet finish. Yes. I feel like there's got to be honey in it somewhere. You know, this, listen, we, we are out of our depth here with being able to put together that kind of recipe, but I expect that we, okay, we got to collaborate now, right? We really need to just get together, have them on and say, what is the LNG that you, and then we'll all sample it together. How does that sound? I love it. I love it. Let's make it happen. Okay. Let's do it. All right. Well, Jesse, I think it's time to wrap it up. So until next time, it definitely is. honor everyone. <laughs> Love the brotherhood. Oh.